Hiya, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? Oh, well, you know, I'm doing okay, but you have nine hours, Rachel, until the yum-yum is delivered, okay? Well, you I'm only you down. have eight. What? Is this some kind of ultimatum you're making here? Is this some kind of standoff of the... Mexican variety that we're going through here of the yum-yum, Rachel? Maybe. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Still sick. Recovering from your illness? Yeah. You have Drafa. It's 100% contagious and 100% fatal. That's not this episode of Babylon 5 we're talking about, but whenever I... You're sick when we cover B5. I'm just going to drop that clip in just because it amuses me personally. Okay. It is 100% terminal. And 100% contagious. We are re-watching and discussing Babylon 5, one episode at a time, and since we are re-watching it, that does mean we are a heavy spoiler podcast, and if you're a first-time viewer of Babylon 5, we suggest you skedaddle, get out of here, go check out some other B5 podcasts like our friends over at Chats, a television podcast, or the last best Babylon podcast, Babylon 5 podcast. plugs as well, Well, I want to make sure that we have a sense of continuity in these two parts because you're still sick those are still some podcasts people can check out we still have the yum yum and i'm gonna say it londo is still the person that says yum yum in this episode no other person came out at me in this episode as the yum yum candidate the 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 douchebag at the bar Ooh, you know are you reconsidering now I just don't think he has a sex appeal. <laughs> Fuck off! You don't even have a sex appeal to have no. yum yum energy. Yeah, we gave it to Nagrath every time he appeared. There's an, th- there's an overlap. There's it's an, an overlap. overlap. So there's a Venn diagram. It's not a necessary part of yum yum energy is sexiness. But it usually helps. Yeah, it helps. And that's why Londo gets it. Because he, he had some uh, swagger to him in this one. Rachel, what episode of Babylon 5 are we talking about for this one? We're saying part two, but part two of what? And what is the summary of said part? A voice in the wilderness. Part two. Part two of two. Yes. No part three. No. This is an old Doctor Who in which it's there's a story and there's seven parts to it and then it's revealed in... Each part that it was the master all along, and John Pertwee shook his fist in the air and said, Master! No. Instead, this is an episode about incredible cyber machines found on Epsilon 3 spark a fierce tug of war to claim the highly advanced technology. But there may be a better way to settle the dispute. Make sure that no one can lay hand, claw, or tentacle. Or tentacle. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Revolutionary machinery. machinery. No one has a tentacle in this fight. But not a single player involved has a tentacle. I was promised a tentacle. I thought I was watching 
an old-fashioned hentai when I read that description, but no, this isn't even... Grail had a tentacle. This did not. Does that mean Grail is a better episode? Rachel, what do you think? No. Um, <laughs> Damn it. You know, Londo does bring his dicks along, which... All the time. It's always on. They're always on him. So, so. so like, there's some tentacle-like appendages. I we... guess, I guess you know what? The Centauri have a minor investment in this plot. I guess they have a tentacle-related game in hey, this. Hey, we know that Londo will use his dicks to grab things. So if, <laughs> if, if things didn't go down... Hey, we don't know how he found that landing gear. Maybe he did it with his dick. Maybe he did it with his dick. So we talked about in our previous episode's discussion our relationship and history with these two parts. It's very... I would imagine it's not too dissimilar to how we talked about last time. We both very... They're good episodes, but they never blow us away. But... It has its place. How do we feel about this second part on this rewatch because we were pretty lukewarm on the first part. We ba- both gave it a yum, even though we both agreed it was mm. a well-written, well-constructed, well-paced out and acted episode. It just didn't blow our socks off and it didn't really engage us as much as some previous entries, yet also it has been better than other yum entries. Yes. How do we go with this second part, Rachel? I feel more disappointed in this episode than I was expecting to. Like, I remember being like, oh, the second part's so much better. And then when we were watching it, I was like, no, it's the, it's the same. It's, it's the same. Well, expand upon that. What, what about it is the same and what exactly is said same thing? Okay. So I've said it over and over again like the these two episodes are serviceable they're mm. just they're performing a function and they don't rise above it but they have some really amazing moments yeah that's what i mean <sighs> so we're at an interesting crossroads here because i loved the second part to my surprise i walked in after our previous discussion with my head held low thinking i'm gonna feel the same way kind of how you are i'm gonna walk in and i want to like it more and then i'm not appreciating it and you know the ending i know the ending already and uh, you know it'll play out but I very much enjoyed this episode. I was having a blast. It was delivering all the things I wanted from a Babylon 5 episode. It flew by. It flew by. There were some issues I I do have with it, and a part of that does come from this being a two-part story and uh, whether it needed to be. But I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. It kicks off with a bang. It does something that I've rarely seen in uh, TV shows when they have the recap of the first and part. It bleeds in which in. It just continues on. There's no Sinclair voice doing the uh, uh, no. uh, Luxana Troy thing where it's like, and now... Back yeah. to this. It just plays out because at the end we're left with who's coming through the the jump gate and then it shows like, us. Like, wait, who's... we didn't see this yeah, last we didn't time. See this, and now it's just playing through the episode. I actually think that's a really neat touch. 
usually saves I, time. I, I I fast forward during those things in yeah. because in two like parts, I just watched it. Not just that, but in a recap of any kind, when we watch Star Trek Discovery, Tips. for instance, we always skip the recaps because they give things Tips away of what's going to be shown or be revealed or be of emphasis in this particular episode that has been set up before. It it taints the water, but. We watched it through for for this just because it's been so long, and it did have a nice little payoff of seeing the recap just bleed into the actual story of the episode. I thought it was a neat touch that, hey, it's something different. What the hell? It's an Earth Alliance heavy cruiser. Babylon controlled Earth cruiser. Nothing personal, but what's going on? We didn't ask for any help. We immediately enter a conflict and we're seeing our crew of characters having to deal with this. And this is what I love. You know I love this shit. Of seeing our characters tired, having their jackets off or unzipped, hands on their face, discussing the administration and the tactics and the bureaucracy of having to deal with a conflict. The drudgery Uh, of working uh, in space. You know, I love it because... This was my favorite moment in the episode. Do you have a guess what my favorite moment in the entire episode was? It's not a speech. It's not a line of dialogue. It's a physical thing. And it has to relate to that drudgery. Do you have a guess? When Sinclair unbuttons after he's done talking to the senator. When Sinclair comes into his office, uh, into his quarters, he unzips his jacket, he's taking it off, he's struggling, and then his link goes off while it's still, while his hand is still stuck in the sleeve. And then he has to rush it out and answer it, and Ivanova tells him he has to come back out, and he just puts the jacket on, and he's like, oh god, here we go, and zips it. My favorite moment in the episode. <laughs> I, it's a little thing. It's not an amazing speech by Londo. It's not an action scene. It's not a comedy thing. It's a humanizing thing. I loved that moment. I smiled at that moment because I've been You'll there. You'll gift that moment. I've been there. I've been there where oh, I've come home. I'm taking this shit off. And then you ring me, for instance. And I'm like, okay, I've got to answer this. And you're like, hey, do you want to come out and do this? And I'm like fine, yes, I'll do that, and I go, and it's like, it's a relatable thing, but I, it set up the tone perfectly of how this situation is going to unfold. It's not going to let up. It's not going to let up, and our characters are tired, but they're going to do their job. They're going to do their fucking job, and they're not going to cry about it, and they're not going to have little tanties about it. And another moment I particularly liked was... Sinclair talking to Garibaldi and telling him he needs to calm his shit down and them just bonding one-to-one about life and love and stress about the world. And I thought in an episode that had a lot of bombastic stuff going on, battles and negotiations and setups and payoffs, I like that there was a quiet moment to have a pleasant and genuine and raw conversation between two characters. Mm. I really like how they transition it into the discussion about Ivanova as well. She'll want to stay. She'll want to stay. But we know that we can't let her. Yeah, I loved the admin and the general drudgery of the episode. So I want to talk about that a little bit more. We've often discussed this already on the pod, but I still think it's applicable to discuss here. 
Why do we like this in this show? It's part of the world. And it's a part of a world that we know, but made extraordinary because it's in space. But that doesn't make it wondrous. It just adds another layer of complications. I usually go to science fiction for escapism or to project myself in another world. But I also like when high genre pieces like your fantasy or your science fiction come back to things I recognize and come back to things that I'm aware of or participate in. We have all been in staff meetings of some sort. You are a teacher. (laughs) You've been in staff meetings in which you're like, okay, we're going over this thing and there's other things going on, but you got to do your job. And it is just... I, like, I don't know how to describe the joy it brings me to see that in Babylon 5 of Sinclair saying to them, grab some food and get a couple hours sleep because this situation is going to be a tough one. Because in a lot of other narratives like your Star Treks, like your Battlestar Galacticas, like your Space Above and Beyonds, they wouldn't take that breath. They skip that part over. And just want you, the audience, to see the heroes doing the heroic plot and narrative and arc and not even quibble at the thought of Garibaldi sitting at a bar with his hands on his head just going, fuck, this is tiring. They don't often want to include those moments unless it's a very special episode and this is a very special scene. But Babylon 5 has that all the time. And that's why I like it. It makes it feel real. It makes it feel consistent. And just seeing our characters be not perfect, I think that's where the truth of the matter lies for me. It makes them feel imperfect because there they are, they're hot, they're tired, they're bothered, and they don't know what to do. Star Trek is something that I find idealistic something I aspire to want to be a part of, while Babylon 5 is something that I feel I am a part of, even though I'm not on the space station and I'm not hanging out with Londo, all of that, I feel a tangible relatability to seeing Sinclair have to bluff his way through a situation and hope it works out, and not knowing that it's going to work out. Desperately trying to bide himself some time. Yeah, and... It shows our characters to be intelligent and to be capable, but without making them unrelatably so, and without it feeling like the writers have reverse-engineered everything. And it's not like they're going, oh, we really have to like back them into a corner at this point in the script, because we're heading towards an ad break and we need the tension to be high. It is problems being solved in ways that we find to be much more enjoyable to watch. We often say with Star Trek Discovery, they solve problems with their action sequences or through a contrived series of events in which we never feel like our protagonists are actually struggling to solve the situation because... The writers have already solved it months in advance and they're reversing the way to get there. I don't feel that with the crew in Babylon 5 here. I know how it all plays out in the end, but when I was watching the sequences of 
Sinclair facing off against Pierce and having to bluff his way here and having to deal with Delenn and Dra and all these other factors. I did get swept up in the he doesn't know how to solve this crisis. Yeah, he I, doesn't have the. I believe that Sinclair is in that moment, even though I know and I can trust that this episode is going where it's going. I still believe that Sinclair doesn't have a clue. It makes it all the more satisfying when they do figure out ways or the story unfolds where they overcome the situation and the scenario rather than it feeling like the 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 the, the resolution was always set in stone and we had to make our characters impervious so that they could get to there. We'll give it another 12 hours, see if we can find a way around this thing. If not, we'll evacuate the station. Try to get as many as we can away from here. It'll be a panic. They'll stampede the docking base. I know. We'll hold back making an announcement as long as possible. But you better go ahead and tell your own people. This could get messy. Get something to eat and try to catch an hour or two of sleep. We've got a long road ahead of us. There's also an added interesting thing with this for me. Like, the debate in reality is about... Who owns the planet? Yeah. And it's really about who gets to own the technology on the planet. Yeah. But... Who gets the power? The the battle that we watch Sinclair rage is over jurisdiction. And I like the way that that's played out because it's... It's about who has the power, but you put different names and different labels on it, depending on, like, the relationships between the characters. And I really enjoy how that's that's reflected again when he gets his apology (laughs) (laughs) from from Pierce. And it's, I regret, I accept your apology. Yeah. Yeah, Sinclair is by the rules. That is also what is infuriating him because he has been told what the rules are and And how the things are set. Other people aren't playing fair. Yeah, this Pierce guy, his existence completely eradicates the status quo and the rules that have been promised and have been put in place because Sinclair brings up an amazing point and this is further showed by Londo later in the episode where... Pierce has a proposition that is from Earth, which is, you don't know how messy this situation is. Once people start to get to know what's going on down there, which people are getting to know, all of these other aliens are going to come here and demand their rights to it because this is neutral territory and the Babylon Project is here to perpetuate that but we it's a diplomatic situation but this is our this is our station still and this planet is ours so we deserve the rights to it first which is a complex statement and belief system for this antagonist to put forth because it's not one you think of in the first part no and it's not one that you necessarily would have thought of until it's brought up but Sinclair counters that beautifully by saying you have now made that a situation set in stone by rocking up with your warship, your your cruiser ship, right here parked outside of the planet and putting you ships down there. You have declared a, a threat by you, being here. You have spit in the face of everyone else and and said, this is ours, back off. 
you have made this an antagonistic stance with everyone else. And I'm here to try and make it not that. I'm trying to smooth things over, try to figure out what to do, because Sinclair is also caught up in the moment of, I am trying to solve the planet not being something that blows up and kills a quarter of a million people. You are thinking about a big picture, but sometimes you need to think about the here and now. It's that kind of war versus battle mentality. Yeah, because a lot of the conflicts that Sinclair has to uh, solve in this show is he is trying to solve an issue that is currently going on. And EarthGov or the aliens or whatever are wanting to ignore this or make it worse or have something bad happen in the situation that would aggravate uh, everyone involved trying to actually solve the situation here and now because they have a big picture, bigger agenda thing. We've seen this before, like with Deathwalker, right? And we've seen it with uh, uh, many others like Midnight on the Firing Line and so on and so forth, in which everyone has their invested interests. But Sinclair, he's on the ground. He's here on the station and he's just trying to make sure that nobody dies. But Pierce and EarthGov don't really care about that. They don't consider that an actual possibility to happen because we've got to get the tech first. And and it relates back to an idea that we both keep on going back to, which is Sinclair really believes in the ideals of the Babylon 5 project. Yeah, 100%. And Earth is showing through their actions like Earth Girls and Earth Force, that they don't give a fuck. No, not at all. They don't. No, like, if it's advantageous, sure. Yeah. If it's not, it's not. Fuck it. With the two, there's three parties involved in the conflict of the planet. They are, there's Babylon 5, there's Pierce with his cruiser, and then there's the aliens who originated from this planet, but they were put aside, they're outcasts. And all three have compelling points to them because, that again, I think that's what makes this more of an enjoyable... They have a reason for their claim. Yes, yes, yes. And they really believe what they're saying. Yes, but, of course, what makes two out of three of them antagonistic is they're being unreasonable. Yeah. (laughs) They just want it. They just want, want, want. We saw that in the first part as well with the science team. They disregard the safety and everything because they just want to go down there. They just want to do this stuff. Sinclair doesn't seem to be as self-interested in that. He, He wants to know what's going on, just to ensure the safety of everything and to maintain order, not to get advantage of power. I don't believe that uh, the Babylon 5 team have really any invested interest in co-opting the technology down there to better themselves, more just to acknowledge its existence and to maintain the safety of everyone involved. They just want to make sure that the planet doesn't explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, who gives a fuck about the technology? The technology is fine, but we need the technology to be stable so that everybody survives instead of getting exploded. What are you going to do, shoot us down? If that's what's required to protect this station, yes. Excuse me? 
Lieutenant Commander, put Delta and Zeta flights on alert. Stand by for immediate launch. Orders? Planetary blockade. Commander, if you order your ships to fire on my fighters, you can kiss your career goodbye. And if you go down there, we're dead anyway. How did you feel about that moment in which Sinclair is willing to shoot upon one of his own ships? Bought it. I just... I'm like, yeah, he's backed into a corner and he will put the needs of the many over himself. Hands down. Easy decision. Yeah. He wouldn't... He doesn't want to, but he would. If the choice is between letting Pierce do something that he knows, he knows is going to kill everybody on that station and potentially everybody on the Hyperion. Yeah. And his career, he's going to pick the lives of those people. I got chills when I watched that moment. One, both actors, even though they're acting through TV screens at one another did a stellar job. The tension between the two men was perfect. Ivanova capped it off with the whole uh, testosterone poisoning line, which was a, a great capper to that. But but I... Those two performers did great. Michael O'Hare, he's, he has such a presence to him. People always say, or have always said, that Michael O'Hare isn't as charming and lacks uh, energy and is wooden. But there's something about these type of moments where he stands his ground and the music swells with him and he has that voice and that physical stance where I think moments like this hit harder for me than when Sheridan does these moments. Yeah. Yeah. Angry Sinclair is very sexy. Indignant Sinclair is also amazing and the sexy i mean he's the sex man of the episode i guess there's just a quality to also the character of sinclair that is just presented with these moments because of the build-up of his his current story when it comes to earth there's an animosity of Earth against him. Earth doesn't like him. They don't like his history with the Mbari. They don't like all of these choices he's making. They don't respect him all that much, except for the president. The president seems to like him just fine, but the president is distracted with the Mars situation. And, yeah, like, his fellow officers don't seem to heed him all that well. Like, Another favorite little moment of mine, uh, this episode has perfect, quiet little character touches, is when Pierce, when we first meet him on Babylon 5. Do you remember? He's watching the TV in Sinclair's office, isn't he? That tells you everything you need to know about how much he respects Sinclair. He walks into the man's fucking office. The guy's not even in the, there yet. That's a big slap in the face already. Like, that's just a, a big one to me. I but, don't but, but, wait on you. But then he's fucking tinkering with shit in his office. Yeah. Could you imagine? And it, he's, like, judging it for being cozy or something. And cushy. Shit and, like yeah, that. it's almost like being back at home. Like, he doesn't... He looks at him not as a soldier anymore. No. He looks at him as a as a desk jockey, as as a bureaucrat, as a politician almost, and he doesn't have You're respect. You're not for... like me. Yeah, I actually know 
the situation and I'm going to handle it with my military way, you've softened up. You don't get it anymore. That moment with the TV screen told me everything I needed to know about the dynamic that was going to go on between these two. And then, what did you think about the actual aliens coming in? Because that's a that's an interesting curveball to throw into the narrative because it sets it up as if all of the other aliens that are on the station yeah. are going to be involved. And but we've seen that no. with we've seen that with Deathwalker, right? Where how that could escalate so quickly. Yeah. But here we don't get that. We get the original inhabitants of the planet. And I like it. I think that it makes sense and it, and it feels right mm-hmm. for the story and the themes that they're exploring in this episode. I, I got a question to ask. Yeah. And I, I don't want to postulate on this instead of just going to the, sh- the immediate answer. Do Did they have an actual claim to that planet, these, these aliens? Did they not have a right to it? Yeah. Like... It's more their planet than it is ours. It's the moral Mm -hmm. thing that it doesn't go into their hands. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing that you say it's more theirs because they've been removed from it for 500 years. Years, but like that's still some link. That's still some level of heritage, more than we thought that it was abandoned. Yeah, and I... now it may be of benefit. So you know, let's pillage it. But then it also that I feel the five hundred years distance and their background that we get told by Vaughn, the remaining good alien there. And we are, we're assuming that he's telling the truth. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. And a great performance, by the way. I just want to highlight that guy did yeah. a really great job. I don't think people credit him enough, but he does a really good job as this old, wise alien who's dying. he That's actually pretty tough to do because yeah. he's also in this makeup. And he did a great and it job. it doesn't feel like it goes overboard. I think that's also another reason why I really like this episode, too, is I thought we everyone's acting was on point. Yeah. For the most part. Like, again... There's one or two, maybe, like those guys at the bar with Garibaldi. I thought they were a little bit too overpitched oh. for my liking. But at the same time, and living in a... They screamed, we're extras. <sighs> but at the same time, living in a COVID-19 world, I've seen those guys so many times. And they act exactly like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I've seen yeah, it. yeah. I've yeah. seen it. No, I was talk- talking just in terms of performance. No, no, like I, it, mean, I mean in their terms performances of... reflected how I see people actually act like that. Like, yes. as overarched as that. And that's the thing where uh. there's going to be that a lot with B5 where there's certain things in which if I made this podcast over four years ago, I would have made that complaint as flippantly. But now I live in a uh, post-Trump, post-COVID world Oh, uh, current COVID world. So, I, so, some things just aged a bit too well. Some things did age a bit too well. Because, yeah, I think those aliens have an interesting uh, avenue of ownership. Because, yeah, it is that thing of, do they... How much time is enough time for them to have lost ownership of it? And then also, they got kicked off the planet. So then... But at the same time, it's like, well, those people who kicked them off the planet aren't there anymore. There's only one of them, and he's dying. So does it even matter what they wanted? Because they no longer exist. 
You know, well, how do you feel about that? Because obviously the show says no because these guys yeah. are antagonistic. But outside of that, like, what do you think about that? No, I think that it, it makes sense to me the way that they kind of explain it. Of This can't be in any one of your people's hands. So we we need to keep this off the table. I was struck, and I don't know if it's just me overreaching, but when Vaughn was speaking about this issue, he had a lot of things that he said that I feel are things that are reflected when we get to Zathras. There's just the certain attitude. There's certain ideology and phrasing and I the understanding the of thing. of stuff and and the the way of speaking, although he's not doing the third person. That kind of jilty, stiff, kind of quick sentence at a time type of thing. And this isn't the actor's delivery. This is like the actual lines of dialogue I'm talking about. This is very deliberate. I felt that. And I've never really thought about that. Because when we find out Zathras is from the planet below, I just always go, oh, that's a neat detail. And why? And I go, why not? But now, actually, upon a rewatch, when we hear this guy speak... I kind of felt the energy of, I could see Zathras interacting with this guy in the past, and then the way that he spoke in this moment just was reminiscent. And I wanted to know from you if I if I was just reaching there, or if you felt this too. No, I felt that. More in the ideology and the way that they are constructing like the meaning of the world and their place in the world. Yeah, I'm all like, you need yeah, to say was this the is... one, and that's all you yeah. need to say. Um, but now that you're mentioning like the way that it, the dialogue itself is constructed, I'm like, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Sacred trust, legacy for the future. I am guardian. I live in the heart of the machine. We are one. The other part of the story, Rachel, is Dral, everybody's favorite character, and he gets to team up with two others. Delenn, who's always he's always teamed up with Delenn, and now Londo. What a trifecta, huh? What a party team! A hey, party bus. And the alien, the alien gets to come along too. Oh wow, they can make a barbershop quartet. Those four. I would love to see that. Them, them singing a little song. I would love to see that. That would be perfect. Yeah, this part of the story, I'm less than pleased with. I think this is the weaker side of the episode for me because. You made this joke to me when we were watching it, which is you said my when when it was at the end, you said my head hurts. Why did your head hurt, Rachel? Because they keep on whacking me over the head with self sacrifice. Self sacrifice. The general theme of this side of the story was too obviously stated throughout. We. Got it, but the episodes just had to keep shoving it in. And although I personally enjoyed 
the monologue from Londo, I think it's one of my favorites, in which he talks about his self-sacrifice, his past, and how he's always been willing to die on his feet, doing something noble and stupid and brave, is better than waiting... Futile. Futile, is better than waiting for the inevitable. That's one of my favorite speeches. When I think of that speech, I, I can't help but think about how it ties into his eventual sacrifice in season five of giving himself over to the drock knowing that this is going to be this prison that he's going to live in but it's better than the destruction of centauri prime and and also like the way that it leads to his actual death of like He's determined to try and do the right thing. Yeah. Like, he's desperately trying to help Sheridan, right? He That also fits the bill of doing something, like, brave, noble, and futile. Because he doesn't know that it's going to work, but he's like, no... Mm. I can't let them have Sheridan. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. When he when he um, let Sheridan go, because that's a part of his prophecy. But another thing I thought you were going to say is, Londo knows how he dies. Yeah, and in this part of the story, in this moment, when I hear that, and then it's better than waiting for the inevitable. It's better than waiting to be choked to death pointlessly by Jakar. Yeah, but like, like that's why I feel like a lot of his motivation is. Yeah. In this part of the story is a lot of his, he has that very set in stone, this is how things are going to end for me. Yep. And maybe I could change this and make it more heroic and glorious of a death. Something that means more and mm-hmm. is less embarrassing and less uh, sad. Something that, that warrior soldier mentality, which how do you feel about how this episode reveals that Londo himself is a veteran. He was somebody who fought in a war. He was a pilot. I always kind of figure that it's at this point that we really hammer that in. Because I'm like, I'm always like, isn't that there from the start? Because it is such a, like... It's such a part of his background to me that not only does he truly believe in the colonization of Centauri people on other worlds, but that he has fought for that. He not just believes it, he wasn't like a conscientious subductor that sat at home on or just Centauri a rich Prime. Guy. Or just a rich guy who wasn't involved. He fought for those ideals. He perpetuated those ideals. And he continues to do that over and over and over again. And sometimes, rare instances, it's for something good, like here. Mm. And the majority of the time, it, it gets abused. And it results in atrocities. That's so interesting. I'm glad that we've talked about this because I've always disliked this moment, this reveal, because I am opposite. I have never believed that Londo was somebody who actually fought in a war. I've always taken it that he was somebody who glorifies and romanticizes this, but he has never actually got his hands dirty until 
this story we're watching with him and Morden and all of that. And I always think about that because then there's that episode Knives in which he has to kill his friend and he always heralds this guy because he was a great war hero and this guy says to him yeah no londo it wasn't actually great i have nightmares about this and i shouldn't have killed all shit's these. fucked and i always have taken it because this in my recollections this background of his never concretely like this comes up again in my recollections maybe we'll see that come up again but i always have taken it that londo was a guy who was not actually in the war or any actual combat or, or military, that he was always just this rich uh, guy back at home drinking his wine, enjoying the benefits of said colonialism and imperialism, but never actually got to know the bloody way of doing so. See, okay, here's the comparison that I want to make. I associate... Londo's ideology as being similar to people in Starship Troopers. Yeah, yeah, indoctrination. Like, that level of, like, I can see all of this awful shit, but because I think that it's right, I don't see it as awful. See, I always just take it that he's too uh, nostalgic and romantic and oblivious to it, and hence... Him actually being forced, forced into the real horrors of actually making an empire hits more for me. Him having these horrified looks later as he realizes now he's got the the death of millions on his hands. I I personally have never been a fan of this part of the this episode where it reveals his background because... I personally just don't think it's true, and I don't think it's actually a part of his character that I think the show ever really seeded through and ever really waters again. But it ties in for this story, in which he is willing to sacrifice himself because he's been willing to do it before, and as Delenn says, he is someone who's trying to find a purpose in his life as well, and he used to have one, and he's lost his way, and he was glad to reconnect with that even if it was for ever so briefly in this moment. So I'm really glad that you you told me your side because I've always just assumed my way was the way, you know, how how the plot was. And I'd never really have heard other people talk about it in the manner that you're speaking either. But again, that's the thing. We all have our different ways of looking at it. And I'm not saying that this is a, a terrible thing to reveal. It's just something that I find to be a disconnect with his character. You're talking to the Centauri who led the raid on Phallus 12. Granted, it was a long time ago, but perhaps it is time to return to old hermits. Ambassador, I don't think you fully understand what Dral is asking of you. Of course I do. One of us will not return. Yes? That much is certain. Uh, we should probably talk about the self-sacrifice and destiny that this episode keeps banging on about and how Dral exists purely to be plugged into the machine and to tie a bow on this overall theme being put in the episode. But you just said it. That is just, just all that it is. It just does the thing and then it does the thing and then it tells you it's doing the thing and then it does the thing and then it, oh, oh oh here's another reminder 
why doesn't it work? We've had other episodes that have been obvious in what they're doing that we have enjoyed in in this manner. Why is this one weak for us? I think because it it lacks a connection and a root in this episode for me because it feels like it's just here because big picture. We we need rather do this because we mm. need to do this. Yeah. Not this story needed to be told and this story needed to be explored. Goes back to the big fault that I have with this episode, which doesn't make it a bad episode, just makes it one that I don't enjoy as much, which is it's just serviceable. It is doing the thing to move everything along a little bit. Uh, I think why I don't like it too much is for a couple of reasons. One, I don't care about Drahl. I like the performance, but I just don't care about him. I, I don't feel I'm like, like we, if he dies, replace him. We, we we haven't spent enough time with him to make me feel all that much for him outside of, obviously, he's going to be the guy to do it because who else would be the one to do it? Yeah, we're, we're not getting to up or to land. I can't see past the obvious device he is. Yeah. Rather than a character. And yep. the device in terms of not just to solve the problem, but to just keep perpetuating this overall thing of self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice, yeah. self-sacrifice. You that much better than I could be bothered to. I just don't care. Another thing, and this ties directly into Drow, but also Delenn. I couldn't help but feel their dialogue was so written I'm a writer writing. I couldn't help but feel how present the scripting of it was rather than the naturalism of the characters speaking that way. And that's a double-edged sword because the Minbari, as a, as a culture, as a people, talk in a specific way. They're very poetic, even though Delenn didn't know what poetry was in the, in the TV movie, but apparently she does know because one of her friends is, the best, is one of the best loved, most loved poets ever. It's a double-edged sword because that's how they speak. But at times, like here, I couldn't help but just feel JMS's uh, hand on their writing too much. Like, he wanted it to sound and feel a certain way. Yeah. And he made it into that. He had a form that it wanted to fit. And it just pushed it over the edge for me. And because Drahl isn't a character I know... I feel less inclined to be forgiving of it because I don't care about Drown and I don't know him. Well, Londo, that beautiful speech I love so much. Yeah, I could make the same complaint about that, but I like that speech because of the performance and it's a performance I'm familiar with because it's a character I know and this feels like an honest thing the character is saying. That thing about his version of self-sacrifice feels like something he would say because I know Londo. And... I don't need 15 episodes to know Dral for these moments to hit. I just don't think these two episodes gave Dral enough of his own individualism as a character to make me care. No. He serves a purpose rather than being a character going on a journey. As, as much as they like to say that the whole time as well, like he's going on a journey and he's going through this and he's found his purpose now... I never feel like I was brought along with that journey and purpose. To me, there is no higher calling, no greater destiny than to live for another and, if necessary, to die for another. 
to somehow make the world a better place. I had done all I could on my world. I came looking for a reason, a way to live out my remaining years with direction and purpose. Here I have found it. I will save lives. A reason I think we also don't care about the Drawl plot and why maybe this whole entire plot with the planet doesn't grab us as much is because JMS and co realized that the planet and Drawl was too powerful of a device for our crew of characters to have, that they literally had a deus ex machina right next to them that they could use to solve any crisis. So they, as a show, reduced the amount of Drahl and the planet's usage until eventually it's you never think about it. And so I think that's a factor of why we aren't drawn to these as well, because in the grander narrative... We're introduced here in a big two-part, the the first two-parter episode. This is a two-part story. So it's going to be big and it's a game-changing thing. And then, not really. You have other moments with drama. They use the planet for little things here and there. But other things pay off more and better than this does. And this gets so much fucking time. Yeah. That it's just like, it's a disappointment to revisit because it's just like, well, this doesn't go anywhere. And it, it, because it's one of so few things that have that. Yeah. Well, it's not that it doesn't go anywhere, it whimpers out. It, yeah. That's how it I would describe flourish. it. Because JMS probably had in his show Bible this idea, but then actually putting something as an idea out into the world, he realizes the ramifications of said idea and has to pull it back. And so I ask you this, did this need to uh, be in the show? Because evidently JMS realized that maybe he should not have put this holy device right next to the station and for them to use because he just restricts it ever being in the story. So I ask... Does this need to be here? Could there be a way where what they use the planet for later could have been written into other types of stories with other ways of getting that information gained? Yeah, I think that it would be possible. I get why this was the idea. But it does feel like maybe if you did a couple more drafts, you would find something that works a little bit tighter than this does. Yeah. I like a lot of the stuff that we get from Epsilon through, like Zathras and all of the stuff that comes from that, and Ivanova using it to find out the information about getting the video footage of President Clark and so on and so forth. But you can definitely tell when you're watching the show that the show realized shit, we probably shouldn't have created this scenario to exist because you could solve every situation in the show with the planets. Yeah. And it, and that's no fun. So I kind of lean on maybe it wasn't a great idea to do this. And maybe it isn't worth it. And that is a major factor into why we just aren't that pleased when we watch this two-parter. This just whimpers out and fades away. You know who doesn't whimper out? France. <laughs> 
Franz, don't whimper, baby. He impregnates. Yeah. <laughs> Franz. Fucking France. See, if it was a what modern kind of reboot, name is fucking France. If yeah, when JMS does the reboot of this, he's gonna have to have the ability to swear more often. And Garibaldi in the reboot better walk off saying "fucking France." Yes, he better do that, or what's the fucking Francing point? <laughs> I give that joke a yum yum. Yum yum. We have in our notes. Let's talk about Garibaldi and Mars, but. Here's what I'm going to say. This is the clearest example of why this did not need to be a two-part story. Because Garibaldi's story clearly should have existed only in one episode. Yes! But because this is two, his worry about Lisa and Mars is ejected from this second part until the end. It's mentioned. Like you, you gotta wait. You gotta wait. You gotta wait. Yeah, you gotta just, wait. And then you, you just gotta and wait. It's just like, oh, okay. And so he is motivated in the episode by, oh, I can't sit on my hands, Jeff. I've got to go down to the planet because I'm worried about Lise and Mars, and you know me. And it's it's weak motivation in the story. What is strong motivation is Jeff. The planet's exploding. That's a stronger motivation. Than than that than than uh, oh I don't want to sit on my hands because my girlfriend back home on Mars is gonna be dead and I don't know and my ex girlfriend that I haven't talked to in at least two years now. It just like with uh, the the planet plot uh, of Epsilon Three in the overall series, this just kind of whimpers out, and then the interaction he has with Lise. But he ends up with Lise, so doesn't uh, it? No, but I mean. The story within this episode. Like, Talia never is in this episode. Like, she was a major contributor to the story in the first part, and she's not even here to see the conclusion of it or interact with it in but, any like, way. just the fact that he went to Talia first before Sinclair, and then Sinclair's just like... You could have gone to me. I got you, buddy! I got a few favors. I've been there. I've been there, man. Is this not a good criticism or is this fair that I could not care less about the Garibaldi lease scene because lease had a stupid sci-fi glowing light behind her in the entire scene and I couldn't take anything seriously when those two were talking to one another um is that unfair because it's, no, it's, it's, it's a truth. No, it's a I, truth. I got distracted by that. I also got distracted by the fact that, like, you know, like, she's in the hospital. Well, we uh, assume that it's a hospital. Yeah, yeah. Or Just some kind things, of Mars-related base. Things are glowing. She's getting medical treatment because she got caught in crossfire. You know what I, I, you know what get... I would have loved? I would have loved to see a sling. Something. She just looked fine. She did. She did. She, she had and, her hair nice and everything. And I'm like, I'm always distracted, stupidly enough, by the fact that she's like, yes, we're expecting our first baby in September. Yeah. And it's just like, what month is it now? Well, we actually can find out. We can figure that out, but I'm just that like. That information is provided. Yeah. But I'm always just like. Just as the strange wording, yeah, yeah. Because like each time she does it, each time we watch it and she says that line, I'm like, 
she says like our first baby and it's just like well Franz doesn't have any other kids well that's what it's indicating and she doesn't have any other kids but so it's indicating it, it, we want more yeah it's like our first baby makes me think that like one of them has other kids every time and that's just the way that i read that line and it just feels odd why not france france gets around you know he's francing around all over the place and i think another factor of why i don't care and i don't want to be targeting of her i don't think the actress who plays lisa is very good because she is not at all rattled her performance is very calm very serene and we're supposed to believe that she was just survived and has been shot from a violent insurgency going on and her calm level-headed performance almost makes the situation on mars feel like it wasn't that bad and also since I'm just going to start picking on him. Oh, well, hold on. Hold on. Just for, just, just a sec. Could you imagine if you are a pregnant woman in her, like if you're in her situation, you're a pregnant woman, you've just been shot. And the idea that this place that you call home has just had an uprising and could at any time again. And then your ex-boyfriend calls you to say, I love you. And I want to get back with you. Do you think you'd become it? Uh, no. No, I think I I would be pissed for one. Yeah. Like, I would be very angry. Like, you're picking it fucking now, Michael. Really? Really? I would not be, uh, oh, I'm going to let you down easy. Like, I'm okay. And that's that's the end of it. No, the the thing that I wanted to pick on is just how she's like, oh, I was just going to get food of all things. And it's just like, well, yeah, you're in the middle of an insurgency with battles happening all around you. Yeah. Of course you need fucking food. That's like, if anything, she should be pissed that it's just like, well, I, I should have been safe doing that. Yeah. But she's just like, oh, you know, just bad luck. Ha. And if more time was dedicated to this side of the story and more time to that scene and actually let her play rattled and afraid and angry, like, give her material. No, she's there to hammer in the point that Garibaldi's past has been cut off from him now. And also, have the link deteriorate because they say that that's going to happen. Yeah. But it just cuts off and it's just these, like, I... Like, yeah, that makes it awkward, but not awkward in the way that I want it to be, where it's like, oh, this is strained and weird and they don't get to resolve things. Yeah. They could have used the editing of the link to oomph that more. The big question. We've already answered it, or at least I have. Did this need to be a two-part story? No. No. I don't think it did. I think this episode pretty much works as its own. If you remove maybe even the Garibaldi thing and you just tighten it up of the planet's going fucky, now Earth is here and they're saying, we've seen this type of thing escalate, like Deathwalker. Again, I keep bringing up, or Eyes, or Legacies, or or Midnight on the Firing Line. We have precedent. We have precedent of chaotic situation and escalation and then resolution of said thing happening within 45 minutes. This did not need to be 90 minutes long. 
This didn't need to be that. This reminds me of The Gathering in terms of you're taking a simple story or one that could work and you're stretching it out and it just did not benefit this. However, I still enjoyed the second part. I thought it was very good and I would happily rewatch it. Well, you know what the second part does bring us that we 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 do not want to eject from this episode. What? Run Canada. Oh, Canada. So, Ron Canada, the actor, is the actor who we are spotlighting for our spotlight section in which we talk about a performer, a guest star, a minor player that has come into Babylon 5, and we want to talk about their performance, what we thought about them, their character, what we know them from as an actor, and any other pieces of information. I want to kick it off by saying Ron Canada is one of the hardest working character actors out there, and he always hundred and forty eight credits. He always on IMDb alone. He's always, done other shit as well. Always plays authority figures, cops, detectives, doctors. judges, doctors, fucking pilots, like all of these things, generals, captains, like always all, something, always like that. something like that. I have personally never seen Ron Canada play anything else he has played sci-fi roles like he was in star trek a few times he played a klingon i'm pretty sure he's been in yeah he was in tng voyager and ds9 yeah yeah i think ds9 he played a a klingon and i can't remember which one he was but i think he was like a lawyer i can't remember it's been a little while odd because his last credit on imdb currently is for a podcast. Excellent. Was he a cop? No, it, it's like a, an interview podcast where they interview different people who are, have been involved in the Star Trek universe. There you go. And Ron Canada is uh, someone I like. We talk about character actors a lot on this podcast or, or working background actors like William Morgan Shepard, who played the Soul Hunter. Yeah. And unlike William Morgan Shepard, and this isn't a slight against Ron Canada, William Morgan Shepard is somebody who always captures your attention. Yes. Because he has a distinct look and a distinct manner of speaking and a presence. Ron Canada is really that actor who does the unsung hero work Mm -hmm. of acting, which is he's always there and he doesn't draw attention away from the main players, but he just adds to it. He's always reliable. I'm he never does his job, but he's not as exciting of a character actor as no. a William Morgan Shepherd or, or John Snyder, where they're just this crazy presence that you want to see and you can't take your eyes off of. He just adds to the production, and that is not to say that he isn't a great actor. He is. I've enjoyed him, but he isn't somebody who's stealing the spotlight away he's just there and he was just here in this episode he did a good job of playing the corrupt or or, uh, antagonistic soldier (laughs) remember how we talked about in eyes how i had a problem with gregory martin's portrayal of that character and just the Mm -hmm. general idea of having the big british guy with a scar on his face who's obviously evil yeah ron canada he does this role could have been similarly mishandled. Mm-hmm. And I like Gregory Martin's performance in Eyes. It was over the top and wonderful, but <laughs> but like it, it, it tipped the hand and it kind of tainted a lot of things in a lot of ways too. Ron Canada does not, at least for myself. How did you feel about him in, in this? I loved him in this. 
I'm like, yeah, you're a dickhead and you know it, mm-hmm. but that's how you get your job done. Yeah. And that's why you're in the position within EarthGov and EarthForce that you are. And you know it. You know that you're the muscle that they've pulled in and that they will continue to shuffle around wherever they need it. Because his character had an inbuilt reasoning for why he was doing the things he was doing, the character was compelling. Yeah. Put Ron Canada in there, who's an experienced actor of playing these type of military roles or authoritative roles, mm-hmm. and it is bread and butter. It is beautiful to watch because Mwah. he feels like a soldier. He yeah. feels real, and he feels like he knows what he's doing as a performer. He knows how to play against Michael O'Hare, for instance. I've seen... Other guest actors not know how to really gel with our main cast members as well, but he managed to do it. I have one complaint. Yes. And I think he's the only one that I've ever seen this in the show once we got past the pilot. Mm-hmm. His uniform doesn't fit. Mm. For some reason, his collar is like really big and it just looks terrible. I didn't notice that. I've always noticed it. His collar is not like everyone else's. And this isn't because he's a different type of miller. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Because the outfit doesn't fit. Costuming. They they couldn't get an outfit that fit him properly. I don't know why. I've never seen Babylon 5 do that outside of this particular performance when it comes to Earth Force people. They always have the tight clasped collar. Here... No, it's it's baggy. You can see his undershirt. It, it's it's a mess, <laughs> and it makes him look like a dork when he's talking to Sinclair, and he's supposed to be like, "I'm the real military guy here," and yet he looks like he's he's just rolled out of bed <laughs> because of his outfit, not because of Ron Canada. <laughs> this is a thing about costuming. They set a standard for what the outfits should look like, and here it is not meeting that set standard that we've seen before. So it makes me take be taken out of the story minorly most people like yourself for instance don't look at these things don't notice these things i do because i get really caught up in thinking about how productions are made and all of that and look i don't get pulled out with every little thing i mean look i know how the sets are fake and the cgi and all of that but i still engross myself in the story but this is just such a specific thing that i can't recollect happening with any other earth force character in the show, I mean, I'm sure, Rachel, when you re-look over the episode, uh, you'll see his collar, you'll notice it now, and it will not leave your head. I'm sorry if I've put that in there for people, but it has bugged the shit out of me since I was 11 years old, and it bugs me now, and I'm 28. It's been a solid while, and this shit still annoys at me so much. JMS, tell us why we couldn't get an outfit that fits prestigious character actor Ron Canada, who is not from... Canada. No. I bet that bugs him. I bet it bugs him more that people will always assume that he's from Canada. Yeah, I bet it bugs him. Yeah. I bet it bugs him. Uh, You want some extra details and extra things that I've seen him in? in? Well, yeah. Well, we recently watched through Boston Legal, and he mm-hmm. was a recurring judge. On Eight that. episodes. He wasn't a funny judge. He was he was Ron Canada, stern, yeah. serious, played the role, didn't steal the spotlight away from James Spader, helped mm-hmm. James Spader. He wasn't a 
one of the wacky judges. He was a serious judge, and uh, that's what I can recollect of recent watches that I've seen him in. In my chambers. Just Ms. Schmidt and Mr. Tiggs. Couldn't I come and just watch? No. I've seen him in Bones. Of course. Yeah, he plays an FBI agent. What? Not a murderer? (laughs) No. Um, I would have also seen him in Seventh Heaven. Of course. Uh, Wedding Crashes. Oh, nice. And (laughs) I want to see if I can make you guess this one. It was a... A movie that I believe that you did on Unappreciated Masterpieces. Another podcast that I have, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. Uh, with, and it has Reese Witherspoon. Have I done a Reese Witherspoon movie before? Oh, wait. I think it's, maybe it's not Reese Witherspoon. You just got to tell me now I'm lost forever. Just like heaven? I've never done that movie and I don't know what it is. Oh, no, I always get it confused with the... um. The one where she dies from an ice statue. Over her dead body, sorry. Yes. Evil Longoria. I don't, oh, I don't know why I get my wires crossed with those two movies, but I do. So you've seen him in this rom-com of some sort. Was he... Uh, let me guess. He wasn't the romantic lead, was he? N- no. Was he no. a dad? Wait. Wait, wait. Was he a lawyer or a cop or a doctor or some kind of judge or something? What was he in that movie, Rachel? Can you tell me if he played some guy with authority? He played Dr. Walsh. Fucking doctor! Got it. And so, just so you you know, uh, the synopsis of Just Like Heaven is a lonely landscaped architect falls for the spirit of the beautiful woman who used to live in his new apartment. And Reese Witherspoon is the ghost. Mark oh. Ruffalo is the go- guy that moves in. Now, so I, was, I... I was getting my wires crossed with um, 13 going on 30. Can I say, as, as can well we as... redo that movie, but the, the romantic ghost is Ron Canada? <laughs> <laughs> and, and keep Mark Ruffalo as the guy. <laughs> Mark Ruffalo falls in love with the ghost of uh, Ron Canada. Just as long as they don't use any CGI de-aging on either of them. No, 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 no. They're both still sexy. Yep. Black don't crack. This sector is under Earth jurisdiction. Any attempt to seize this planet by force or to launch an attack will be met with deadly force. You have nine hours in which to withdraw. Yeah, Ron Canada's a legend, and he continues to be a legend. He's awesome. And he's awesome in this episode. He's got a voice, just this voice, this rich, smooth, deep voice that says, do not fuck with me. My favorite moment from him in the episode was when the aliens say, you have 10 hours, and then he calls them back and says, actually, no, fuck you, you have nine hours to get (laughs) your shit together. That's a corny, cheesy thing to put in your script, but Ron Canada delivers it with such ease that I fist-pumped when it happened. That is the benefit of having the right actor in the right place who can deliver the material and make it more than it could be. Because that line could have made my eyes roll if delivered by another actor. But here, I championed that moment. Where do we land on this episode? Is it a yum being bad or a yum yum being good? You go first. Well, I think it's obvious. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. See, I can't forgive its faults. It doesn't get 
past that. It doesn't it doesn't get to lift off, so it's a yum for me. Yum. What are we going to be watching and talking about next time on Babylon 5? On the next Babylon 5. Episode 20 of Season 1 of Babylon 5, which is Babylon Squared. Possibly the one of the greatest titles in Babylon 5. Simple um, and to I, the point and lets you know what it's about. From memory, I fucking love this episode. Well, tell us what the DVD has to say about it to remind Before me. Before B5, there was B4. Yeah, yeah, but before... The long lost station mysteriously reappears triggered triggering a desperate scramble to the rescue of B4's crew before the craft slips again into time. There's another revelation. The astonishing identity of the galactic spiritual leader called The One. Too many B4s and before in that, but... uh, It wanted the puns. This is when Babylon 4 reappears. One of the central mysteries that Quintessential. One of the central mysteries that drew me in and has always drawn me in. It's been one that I was always fascinated by and always am when I rewatch. Was this an episode that you rewatched when you only had season one? of course. Of course. Of course. It has Zathras, which wasn't mentioned, but that's fine. We've got a surprise. You've got to give them Zathras as a little surprise. He's a yum-yum in that episode for sure. Uh, Zathras is always a yum-yum for you, honey. Yeah, well... We're done talking about this uh, episode of Babylon 5, and now we're wrapping out. You can find us on all of the social media platforms available, pretty much, except for MySpace. Should we get to MySpace? No, that's mainly for bands. We can be a band. Do you want to be a band? No. I can make a Ron Canada song and apply it to the Canadian National Anthem. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ron Canada. Ba, ba, ba. Let us know uh, if you want us to be on MySpace because currently we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, TikTok, Tumblr, blah, 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 blah. We are on those. You can uh, follow us on there, interact with us on there because we are always posting things. We are always engaging, having funny conversations and putting up funny in, uh, images and videos and All of that great and good stuff will be greatly appreciated if you follow us on there. We also have an email in which you can email us with your questions, your queries, your thoughts, your concerns, things that you just want to let us know. And if you want us to read it out on the podcast, uh, we're free to do so. Our email is... Well, I just want to point out that last time we also demanded things of Canadians. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you're Canadians and you're still going to follow our threatening demands, you can email us at, at yumyumpod at gmail.com. Yumyumpod at gmail.com. We have a Patreon, a Patreon in which we talk about movies, we talk about TV shows, we give our thoughts on general pieces of media. We're going through currently uh, the top five and bottom five rated episodes of Star Trek, according to IMDb. And we're doing it at random. You can come over to Patreon, Yum Yum Podcast on Patreon, support us on there, and you can be a part of an exclusive group Discord in which you can chat to us and debate with us about all of these kind of uh, things about Babylon 5, Star Trek, and whatever you like. Come on over. It's a fun time and a fun place. Rachel 
Uh, that's pretty much it, isn't it? We don't have anything mm-hmm. else. All of this is in the description of the episode. Jakar was not here to say anything because he's not in the episode, but the uh, they did talk about a line that relates to Jakar. I think it was Jarl or the alien was talking about how people should not be touching the planet down below, and one of the characters, I think it was Drow, mentioned uh, enlightened self-interest being a thing that is not welcomed down there, which is neat, because I do believe that is uh, one of the three principles to life that Jakar uh, bestowed upon us all in uh, the previous episode, one of the previous episodes, Survivors. And so that's a neat little touch. Even though Jakar's not here, we are here to say... Good eating to you. Good eating to you.